Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and this is number 138. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter and it's been a bit of a frustrating week here because, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this before I figured it out, but the pandemic and working from home seems to have led a lot of companies to just not communicate anymore. Some places don't even have a phone anymore. You have to fill in an online form and wait. Others have an answering service, which is pretty much the same thing. So I made about 20 calls and sent in at least a dozen other forms. And out of those, I got one live voice. And I was so shocked, I didn't know what to say for a second. And of the others, no responses whatsoever. I actually wouldn't mind leaving messages and filling in forms if people would get back to me, but they really don't. As I said, I'm sure many of you have had similar issues, so it's not like I'm the only one that this is happening to. Anyway, I'm glad I got that off my chest. Speaking of photos, I remember vividly having to chase news photos such as fires when I was at the newspaper, because at small newspapers, the editor doesn't get excused from reporting and photography. And I was reminded of that this week when we had a small fire in the village. Incredibly, there was one in the nearest town as well, so it took a while for hours to be put out. I'm not sure I can stand the excitement. Temporary traffic lights last month and a fire this month. Next month, it will be something really incredible, like there will actually be someone on the bus that goes through the village. Anyway, I should let you know who we have on the show this week. We have conversations with climate-neutral CEO Austin Whitman. Then it's Nikki Jackson, CEO of RangeMe. And from Tetra Pak, we also have Frederick Vellendorf, Vice President Liquid Food, and Alejandro Cabal, Vice President Packaging Solutions. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets, and this week it's with Charlie Highland at Stonex. So let's move on to the news you may have missed from the past seven days. In the U.S., Chekhov has partnered with Middle East Domino's to push cheese exports. The Dairy Business Association says the Wisconsin export program is crucial for dairy, and Organic Valley hit a record $1.2 billion in sales. Parlor Foods Ingredients showcased some potential uses for whey protein and casein in meal replacements. Valio published its 2020 financials. And a new report shows how much Canadians in different parts of the country pay for their milk. A hint, in some places, it's quite a lot. And we'll have an interview about that in the coming weeks on the podcast. So we'll try and find out the prices in some hard-to-say places like Muscadobit and Russia Gornish. Although, as my wife helpfully pointed out, there is no store in Russia Gornish to buy milk from. Synergy Flavors has developed a new citrus range. Simrise opened a new innovation center in Dubai, and SIG upgraded its high-speed small aseptic carton filling machine. Another upcoming interview on the podcast is with Imagine Dairy, which has developed dairy-free whey and casein proteins. Strauss Family Creamery moved to its new Sonoma County dairy plant in California, and Kerry Research shows the top emotions associated with botanical extracts and flavors. German dairy cooperative DMK Group said the pandemic won't shift the company's path to its 2030 goals. And you can read all of these, or just some, and plenty more at DairyReporter.com. Let's get to this week's guests. 
first up this week is Tetra Pak, which earlier this month showcased its new UHT 2.0 heating portfolio and Tetra Pak E3 Speed Hyper Packaging Equipment. To tell us about it and what it means for sustainability and the benefits for companies using it are Frederick Vellendorf, Vice President Liquid Food, and Alejandro Cabal, Vice President Packaging Solutions, who you will hear from first. So I wonder if you could start with giving me a little bit of background on the new equipment and what it was designed to address. The new equipment is designed to be able to cover the customer needs of mainly increasing the performance that dairy industry have in their own factories. And secondly, to improve the environmental credentials. Uh, we all know that sustainability has become one of the top elements in any companies or in any CEO agenda. And by addressing the performance and by addressing the environmental concerns, we believe that our new UHT systems that we have decided to call One Step and that our new hyperspeed A3 platforms are designed exactly to meet those criteria. By one, reducing the operational costs around 10%, but also as importantly, to be able to reduce the greenhouse emissions, to reduce water waste, to reduce product waste, and to avoid the use of chemicals in the production cycles. So what we believe is that this system thinking is certainly a revolution in the dairy industry that, of course, is under pressure, like most of the food industry, to be able to reduce food waste, to reduce the environmental footprint, and, of course, increase the performance in order to meet the increasing consumer and legislation requirements. And so in terms of the equipment itself, how does all of this work? Well, basically, the Tetrapax one-step technology makes the production process simpler, with less step, and more energy efficient. It's in a single unbroken step. Uh, raw milk is preheated, it's separated, it's standardized, and it's homogenized before it undertakes the UHT heat treatment and they are after cooled and, and transferred to the aseptic tank for filling. If you compare that to a traditional process, pasteurization and intermediate storage step is removed, and therefore the process time uh, is, first of all, significantly reduced, and also coming with that is, of course, a significant reduction in operating costs, especially compared to a conventional line. Using this one-step technology, this reduces by up to 50% in terms of costs. If we then a little bit more into details of what is possible with this, it's possible to combine concentrates from powders directly by inline blending, and therefore you do not need extra pasteurizer and maybe extra tanks, and therefore saving costs. It's also possible to add different streams in the blending steps. It could, for example, be a, a chocolate slurry, for chocolate milk, it could be a protein concentrate for energy type uh, drink. And this gives dairy manufacturers possibilities to produce 
a wide range of value-added products. It's even possible to add ingredients on the aseptic side. Uh, it could, for example, be lactase to create a lactose-reduced milk. And therefore, with all these different possibilities, there is a huge variety of dairy drinks possible to process on such a line. So if I conclude on the one-step technology, dairy producers can meet the increased pressure to make dairy production techniques more sustainable, more flexible, and more cost-efficient. But that's not the whole line. There's also possibilities for improving on the filling side. If we talk about Tetra Pak E3 Speed Hyper, it's worth to expand on the e-beam solution. The e-beam lamp technology has been developed by Tetra Pak in collaboration with our partner Comet. It sterilizes packaging material using electron beams and therefore replaces the traditional hydrogen peroxide sterilization process for the packaging material. It adds further to the complete line efficiency by delivering three key benefits. It reduces operational costs on the filling, it improves environmental performance, and it increases production flexibility. So who will be able to use this new equipment? Well, our UHT 2.0 portfolio and the Tetra Pak E3 speed hyperfilling machines have been especially designed to benefit a wide range of producers. Quality means different things to different customers. But when it comes to our UHT portfolio, we have over 100 options that we can combine to suit exact needs. We can find the perfect match, whether this be a smart basic solution or indeed a more advanced one. For example, we provide UHT solutions with either direct or indirect heating and other many possible combinations. Furthermore, customers can have more than one application on the same line and can easily expand that portfolio if they find new product areas to grow into. So what will the benefits be for companies using this equipment? Yeah, let me start with a point that I believe is a key benefit for companies, but also for the society uh, as a whole. And we all know basically that water scarcity is one of the key risks that we have globally. And also especially since one-fifth of our customer base are in areas where water scarcity is a risk. So it is very important to understand that one of the key elements of our systems, especially when working integrated, is that there can be a reduction of around 70% in water usage. And that is a dramatic increase. And also what we are featuring is water filtration solutions to basically to reuse the water that is being used in the process to refilter it and then be able to recover around 95% of the water that is used. Then of course, there are much more benefits beyond the water consumption and one is, of course, the flexibility of this system, as was mentioned by Frederick. Also very important, I want to reinstate that performance and the cost of ownership diminishes by using less resources. It is also enabled by having automation features, by working very closely with partners such as Rockwell or Siemens, 
where we are able to have full traceability in the products that our customers produce and put in the market. And an important element of our hyperspeed platforms is that actually is the fastest machine in the industry. And not only that, that if we compare it to a PET line, it not only reduces the carbon footprint by at least a half, but also the maintenance cost. So basically here we're talking uh, about uh, a system that it's fitting the requirements from customers, fitting the requirements from society, and of course, fitting the requirements of high quality products that consumers want. So basically, all companies would like to have these systems. And how do you calculate the benefits from this system? Well, from a processing side, when we talk about combining the UHT and the one-step technology, it scores uh, highly across the industry benchmark for sustainability with a 0.8 greenhouse gas index score and a 0.3 water index score and a product losses index score of 0.7. And what does that actually mean? What is the real benefits then uh, talking about these scores? Well, putting this in a different way, when compared to a conventional line solution, the optimal integrated solution reduces greenhouse gases emission by 20%. We can reduce water usage by 70% and the product losses will be reduced by 30%. I guess over to Alejandro then, uh, how do you calculate the benefits from the packaging point of view? It, it is very important to understand that the way in which we measure the impact that we have on our products is through life cycle assessment. And what is very interesting is that independently of the results across the different regions can vary, basically all of the assessments confirm that the footprint that our packaging has versus alternative competitors such as glass, plastic or, or metal packages, we have a much lower carbon footprint. For example, if customers and consumers were to prefer our one liter packaging with the opening solutions that we have today made of renewable resources coming from sugarcane, and this compared to PET bottles, we would save yearly 90,000 tons of CO2 emissions. So this is just one example that these small things make a difference. The, the other very important point is that we're on a journey to move from 70% to currently 90% of our of some of our packages made of renewable or recycled uh, materials. And of course, we're on a journey to make the most sustainable food packaging, which means that we will have packaging made 100% of renewable and recycled materials very soon. So, of course, as part of our commitment towards a fully renewable packaging, we are continuously exploring sustainable alternatives that can shift us from high carbon fossil based material to low carbon renewable, recycled and responsibly sourced materials. And so are there any other ways that you can help companies reduce their footprints? 
So let me let me comment uh, a couple of elements that are absolutely critical to understand. One, the technology, but also how we can help companies reach their greenhouse gas targets. Uh, the first thing is that by introducing new technologies such as eBeam, which basically is sterilizing by a process of shock of electrons, we are avoiding the use of chemicals. And, and I think that is very important because we're the first in the, in the dairy industry to introduce this technology. So by using that technology to basically reduce the environmental impact, that is a key element in our value proposition to customers. But you know that doing this alone is not possible. Today, we know that 90% of the greenhouse gases emissions that are produced in the value chain are coming either from the suppliers of raw materials or in the customer production sites. So unless we work in partnerships in order to reduce the value chain emissions, we will not reach the targets that have been set by us or by our customers. We have set very aggressive targets of being net zero by 20 30 in our own operations and being net zero in the full value chain by 2050. That means that unless we work closely in partnership with our board suppliers, with our polymer suppliers, with our equipment suppliers, with our customers hand in hand, we will not be able to achieve those targets. The, the other very important point is not only about what greenhouse gases or emissions or water consumption reduction is produced at customer site. We also need to think on the materials that we're using. And from that point of view, we are also working on very strong partnerships. Even if today 70% of our package is made of renewable material, then of course we want not only to increase that renewable content, but whatever today is coming from fossil based, we want it to come from either renewable sources or recycled content. And an example of these partnerships is we are working with Ineos, who is one of our suppliers, to basically to change all of the fossil-based polymers to recycled polymers. So that is a journey that we need to take small steps, but steady steps all the time to improve the sustainability of our systems, which is composed, of course, by the equipment that we sell and how they become more efficient, but also of the materials that we use in our packaging in order to make them more sustainable, more recycled. And actually what we like to say in Tetra Pak is designed for to be recycled. We believe also in our equipment is that we also need to reuse the energy, reuse the water to make those equipment also more efficient. Now we hear about a new launch in the UK, RangeMe, which is already well established in the US and many other countries. RangeMe is a global online platform where retailers and suppliers can discover, connect and grow their business. How does it all work? Well, to tell us about it is RangeMe CEO, Nikki Jackson. So I, I guess the first question would be if you could just really fill me in and give me a bit of background on 
what RangeMe is? Sure, absolutely. So RangeMe is a platform which helps streamline the way that brands and retailers connect. And I started RangeMe out of my own pain points to try and get a product that I was launching in front of major retailers at the time. Um, just a bit of background on my side, um, I come from the FMCG or CPG background. So I spent many years working at big multinational brands like Kellogg's. Actually, when I was in the UK, I worked on RHM Foods on the Bisto gravy brand and launched the gravy sachet into the market there, which is the first of its kind, which is very exciting. And also worked on Britvic brand and J2O. So my, my background is launching big brands to market. And when I was on maternity leave with my second child, I decided to launch an organic skincare range for kids with eczema because my little girl at the time had terrible eczema. And I really struggled to get a foot in the door at the major retailers. And coming from the big multinational background, I was used to, you know, walking into the retailers and selling, you know, our new innovation. And what I quickly discovered is that for innovators, innovators and new brands, it is very difficult to get a foot in the door. And so I thought to myself at the time, there has to be an easier way for brands to connect with retailers and retailers to connect with brands. And so I started researching the pain points on both sides. And this was back in 2013. And what we were seeing at that time was a shift in the market where new brands were entering the market at scale that were innovative and you know differentiated. But the process of them accessing the retailers was very much stuck in the old world of, okay, well, you have to have an agent or a broker you know, introducing you to the retailer or an existing relationship. And so RangeMe um, set about to change all that to help the retailers discover new innovation and also help the brands connect with the retailers based on the credentials of both. So it's very similar to a matchmaking platform because if you think about the way that a buyer is set up on our platform, they have the selections of the categories that they buy for in RangeMe. And then the supplier has the credentials in their product profile, which beautifully presents their product to the retailer. But all their information is there, um, the category that the product belongs into, but a whole lot of information from approvals and certifications that, that product has to unique selling propositions to pricing, all that information is in the profile. And it makes it very easy for the retailer to discover and connect with the brand based on the credentials of that product. So essentially, that was, I guess, the genesis of why RangeMe was born. I always say it's my third child. And it really was to help streamline a process that was really stuck in the old world of supplier sending unsolicited samples to the office of a buyer, trying to get a foot in the door, trying to send a LinkedIn message, trying to send an email, a cold call, et cetera. ArrangeMe really was about trying to help that supplier access that retailer and help that retailer access that innovation they were looking for at the click of a button. So it was really we're trying to streamline on both ends and really trying to cut the time that a product that the consumer actually wants could land up on shelf. It was about using technology to expedite the sourcing process and make everything just a whole lot simpler. And fast forward to today, ArrangeMe operates in a global marketplace and we operate in Australia, New Zealand, the US, Canada, and have just launched into the UK market. So really excited about that um, because Obviously, my background, having worked in the UK market, it's definitely close to my heart. And it's the first step for the platform launching into Europe as well. So, And we have on the podcast listeners from pretty much every sector, right the way from retailers through to producers. So looking at it from the retailer's point of view first, how does it work for mm -hmm. a retailer? How would they access this and, and how does it work for them? 
So firstly, anyone who is on the platform as a retailer or a buyer has to be approved in order to have a profile and access into RangeMe. And what it means to be a retail partner is that they work directly with our enterprise retail team. And for the retailer, we help streamline all the new suppliers that want to get a foot in the door at that retailer. So I will use Lloyd's, for example, is one of the first retailers who signed up in the UK market. If you navigate to the Lloyd's website and navigate and try to find the contact information of their buyers or their head office to try to get a, you know, in touch with their buyers, they will navigate any of those inquiries through RangeMe. So what happens at that point is that suppliers start to create their and populate their profiles and it then gets pushed into the dashboard of the buyers for the retailers that we work with. So that's how we work with the retailers. And so it is very much a strategic relationship that we have with all the retailers that we work with. It's not just us saying we work with a retailer. When we work with a retailer, we work with every single buyer within that retail organization across all categories. So I know we're here today to talk about dairy. And of course, within the food and grocery market, dairy is a key part of the categories that we look after. And the buyers that look after dairy will have profiles within the RangeMe platform. So RangeMe is, I guess, a company-wide new process for the way that that retailer discovers new innovation and also funnels in all those new suppliers that want to get a foot in the door at that retailer. And so we help streamline that whole process for them and partner with them on that journey. And so it really is a top-to-top relationship that we build with the retailers that we work with. And looking at it from the other angle, what about for small producers? How does it work for them? Yeah. So a small producer can just go onto the RangeMe website and click into the supplier section and create their free RangeMe profile. They will be prompted to add all the information that the retailer needs to see to make a decision if they're interested or not interested in connecting with them in the platform. And they will populate all their information. Someone in the RangeMe team will approve their profile before it goes live to ensure that everything is filled out and in the correct categories before it gets pushed live into the marketplace. And then if a buyer reaches out or connects with that supplier, they will be alerted to that. So within the platform, buyers can save a product of interest. They can also message that supplier or request a sample. And so all those prompts will ensure that the supplier is notified and the buyer and supplier converse and message directly in the platform. So very similar to the way um, LinkedIn works. The idea behind that is to create a safe space for those conversations to happen. And then, of course, if the retailer wants to take it that step further and invite the supplier in to do business, then they take that conversation offline off the platform. But all the initial discussions and connections happen right within the platform. Is uh, RangeMe itself, are you involved in any of that transactional stuff or is it once everybody's registered, they just deal with each other? Yes. Once everyone is registered, they just deal with each other. So that's the other benefit of the, of the platform. We don't act like an agent, broker, or distributor. We, we don't take a percentage of the sales. We just help facilitate the initial connection between the buyer and supplier. And what are the advantages for this system for producers and retailers as opposed to doing it the old way of just contacting direct and working that way? The benefit is that RangeMe is the industry standard for product sourcing. And what we've done in the US market is we really have dominated that market and we now work with over 70% of the leading US retailers. So really, if I talk about the US market and we'll be doing the exact same in the UK and then into, into Europe is that if you are 
a producer and you have a product and you are serious about getting in front of retailers, you can't not have a Range Me presence. It's just the way the industry works. You know, we partner in the US with all the leading certification bodies. You know, we have a really big footprint over there. And so it really is the entry point to doing businesses that you have to, I guess, have that profile in order to be considered, in order to be seen. And I would say on the retailer side, and so in the UK market, you know, the benefit of supplier signing up is having access to the retailers that we're going to bring on board very quickly in the UK, in the UK market. But then, of course, if you have export capabilities for other markets, such as the US or Canada, New Zealand, Australia, you know, you can have access to buyers you ordinarily wouldn't have had access to. On the retailer side, the benefits of using the platform is you can discover products from all over the world. So you can discover products that can supply you local to your market. And then, of course, internationally, you can also access trends, understand what's trending on Instagram, what's trending on social media, what's trending in the market, um, have access to a marketplace of over 200,000 suppliers in a vast range of categories. So you're bound to find innovation in the categories that you look after. And so the benefit for the retailers is not only streamlining that process of managing those new supplier inquiries, but also access to the marketplace of innovation. So you really are saving time on both fronts. And the difference between doing it in in the old world is that, quite frankly, no retailer has time to sift through inquiries and cold calls that come to their desktop. I I know my day-to-day, I'm getting cold calls and inquiries all the time from different service providers, and I quite frankly don't have the time to look through them. It's exactly the same. If you think about the life of a buyer, they're completely being overwhelmed by their day-to-day, let alone looking at the new suppliers trying to get in the foot in the door with new innovation. So it really is important that they have this funnel and this way of managing those inquiries because when they view those products within RangeMe, within 30 to 60 seconds, they can see whether that supply is right for them. It's beautifully presented, rich imagery, got all the information there, pricing information, where the product's made, where it can be distributed, right down to packaging dimensions, approvals and certifications linked to the supplier's website, social media, indicative pricing, where that supplier is currently stocked. So are they my competitor? Are they not? You know, there's so much great information in there. And we give the buyers the tools to really funnel down on the suppliers that are of interest to them by these filters in the platform. So They can filter their dashboard by price, by private label capabilities. You know, there's a huge range of features available to them to really help streamline that process and find the right supply. And there's golden opportunities for them. And does it um, have applications for dairy and dairy alternative products? Of course. And actually, just before this call, I was emulating a buyer dashboard and looking into the dairy category and just seeing what interesting products I could see into in dairy, non-dairy. And definitely, it's a very fast-growing category when you think about innovation. And if I just think about what's going on in the U.S. market in dairy, and I'm sure it's very similar to what's happening in the U.K., prebiotics, probiotics, protein, you know, even keto plant-based dairy products. And then, of course, on the milk alternative side, there's a whole host of innovation happening. So absolutely, it's a core category and there's a lot of innovation happening in that space. And what about scale? Because if you're a small artisan cheese provider and all of a sudden one of the biggest retailers says, I really like your product, how how does the, the scale aspect work into it? Clearly, if you can supply every major retailer in the UK, then that's great. But if you can't, how does that work? 
So when a supplier signs up, we ask them to identify where they can distribute to. So if you are a small local supplier, you will only have a very finite area that you can actually supply. And so the buyer on the flip side puts that as part of their profiling to see suppliers that can supply broadly or, or more narrowly. So that's something which we address in the profiling of the supplier. And then, of course, there's other indicators which indicate size of supplier. So we ask suppliers, you know, obviously how many years they've been trading, revenue range as well. So it's quite easy to identify those suppliers that truly are unique and new and small versus those that are more established. And I think some retailers have an appetite for bringing on smaller suppliers that are less proven and helping them get to market and helping them expand their horizons. So some retailers are really good at that. And of course, others are you know, rather wait for those suppliers to be more established before they take that leap of faith and take them on. But absolutely, the platform helps them streamline and identify those. Sure. So it's not something where if you were a small producer, then you should say, well, it's not really going to be relevant for me. It still would be useful. Absolutely relevant. And I would say that, you know, in the US market as well, we, we bring on retailers of all different sizes, even small retailers small regional retailers and we'll be doing the, the same in the UK and European market. So it is definitely important to have a presence and there's a whole lot of tools and functionality within the platform that these smaller producers can take advantage of as well. So RangeMe acts is almost like the digital sell sheet for these suppliers. So you can download, you know, a PDF of your profile, which is a beautiful format of presentation of your brand. So there's a lot of wonderful functionality that we've built out for suppliers within the platform, and they should absolutely take advantage of that, no matter what their size is. And best of all, it's free to create a arrangement profile, so cost isn't a hindrance. And similarly, if you're a small retailer, like a small cheese shop, you could also benefit from that because you'd be able to get access to more products from i assume that if you were say a cheese shop in amsterdam that you could buy from the rest of the world if you wanted to absolutely so it really is about breaking down those barriers of geography as well so you know pre-covid people were able to go and travel from country to country looking for innovation now we are restricted in more ways than none and so range me has really broken down those global barriers because we're able to connect suppliers and buyers all over the world just by what they're looking for, what their credentials are, and help connect the two to help them do business regardless of this constraint that we're under at the moment. And you mentioned earlier about how it identifies trends. How does it identify trends and how does it convey that to retailers? Yeah, so one of the ways we do it, for example, we have a, an API with Instagram where we are showcasing to buyers if they want to click on that Instagram filter, suppliers that are growing in terms of their Instagram following. And that's often a big indicator of a, a brand which is growing based on the influences. TikTok is another interesting way that retailers are looking to discover new innovation and new brands that are trending. And then they can click into those profiles and connect with those brands. We also aggregate buyer activity um, within the platform and on, on average report that back to the retailers so they can see what's trending based on, you know, certain categories, certain certifications, certain keyword searches that are, are more prominent because we have so much activity within the platform. It really is the melting pot of activity and discovery when it comes to new innovation that we do aggregate and feed that back to our retailer community. And when it comes to the platform itself, 
sometimes people are a bit technophobic. Is it something that's really easy to use? Absolutely. I would. I always say if you can use social media, if you can create a Facebook page, if you can use LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, you can use RangeMe. It really is simple, intuitive, and we've spent a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of years you know, making sure that we master that to make sure it's a great experience on both ends. So don't be afraid. The platform will prompt you and help you throughout the process. And it really is a great way for if you're a supplier out there to get your products discovered by retailers. And if you're a retailer out there to discover new innovations. So definitely don't be afraid. It's simple. It's intuitive. And there's nothing to worry about when it comes to technology. You know, we have a team now of well over 100 range me folks. And I think what really gets them excited is helping both our retailers and suppliers succeed. And nothing gets us more excited when you hear about these fantastic stories of these suppliers that are new and emerging, and they've hit the shelf of a major retailer, thanks to the connection in RangeMe. That is really what drives us and our team. It's really about helping to create that access and break down those barriers. So we're really excited to help provide that access for the dairy category in the UK and beyond. Do you promote those success stories? We do. So if you go to the Range Me site website and click on success stories, there are lots of success stories there and um, you can read through them. I often love to read them because there's always a bit of a background about who the brand is and what makes them unique. And you mentioned how you sort of step aside and let the companies deal with it themselves. But if there are issues, such as like a company is saying, we're really looking for this kind of product and we can't find it, or if a supplier of a product is saying, look, this is really not taking off, are you able to help in situations like that? On the retailer side, if a retailer is struggling to find what we're looking, what they're looking for on the platform, we do have dedicated account managers who help them navigate their dashboard to find suitable products. And if they still don't have enough innovation of what they're specifically looking for, we actually run bespoke sourcing campaigns for them. So that's the service that we offer on the on the retailer side. On the supplier side, if they're not getting traction or assistance, we do have customer support teams um, and a whole lot of education articles within the platform, which help them um, understand how to put their best foot forward within their product profile how to best present themselves to the retailers and and best-in-class way of doing that. And that's also available through our website. So we do try as much as we can possibly help educate suppliers on their journey because at the end of the day, we want them to be successful. If you read Dairy Reporter regularly, and I hope you do, you may well have noticed a sharp increase in articles about such things as compostable packaging, plastic reduction, sustainability, greenhouse gas emissions, targets, and many more. With slightly more than a fifth of the world's largest companies already committed to meeting net zero targets, according to Forbes, it's important to note who's taking stock of corporations pledging carbon commitments. But is net zero simply the new greenwashing buzzword? To find out, we spoke to the U.S. organization Climate Neutral's CEO, Austin Whitman, about what companies are doing and if it's enough. I guess the first thing is to get a bit of background on what Climate Neutral is and what you do. We started um, the organization about two years ago in March of 2019, kind of observing that there was a pretty noticeable gap in the consumer labeling 
sphere for carbon or climate related information. And yet a lot of people are increasingly concerned about the everyday impacts of things that they do and looking for ways to make it so that the decisions that they make are, you know, in some way more positive for the climate. And so, you know, we sort of decided that there should be a organic type label, but for carbon emissions and went about looking around at other certification schemes and labeling efforts that have been undertaken to see what they look like and what requirements they placed on companies. And we're aware of, at the time of all the different carbon neutrality commitments that companies were making and felt like there was such a freeform mentality to how companies are really approaching carbon neutrality because everybody has the ability to make up their own rules and come up with their own standards. And that felt like a problem because if what people are doing is not actually meaningful, then it's not going to ultimately solve the problem. So we came up with a certification system and approached things a little bit differently from others that have worked in this space in the sense that we felt like consumer engagement would really be critical to the success. So rather than approaching this like a consulting practice or a for-profit, we decided that consumer engagement was really important and that we would do this in a collaborative way so that rather than trying to keep companies or you know, clients, if you will, from talking to each other, we would get everybody together to share ideas. So that's sort of the thinking that went into the setup of the organization. And in the first year, we managed to get about 150 companies through our certification process. So it definitely seems to have struck a chord and we'll be at about 350 by the end of this year, ranging from large retailers all the way down to small startups. What are the issues that you have seen or are still seeing with regards to some of the net zero claims that some companies are making? I mean, I think that net zero is great as a global framing trajectory, net zero by 2050, more specifically, which scientists have said is the point that we need to get to. It doesn't to me feel like a particularly significant goal for a company because it's too far off and it's too nebulous. 30 years is, is an eternity and it's no time at all. If you look at sort of the history, right? It feels like 30 years is so far off. But if you look at 30 years ago, it was 1991. Uh, and 1992 was the first time countries got together negotiating international climate arrangements. And yet 30 years into that, we really don't have any sort of international coordination on policy. So the point is that time can go by really quickly. And it's easy to think that, you know, in the next 10 years, of course, we'll be able to make progress. And then the next 30 years of Absolutely, you know, we'll get to net zero, but nobody owns a 30-year goal. I mean, a 30-year goal is a is a talking point, and people own one to three-year goals. And my view in, on net zero is every company should have a net zero vision, but a immediate plan for carbon neutrality and carbon reduction. I would say that there's certainly a lot more awareness and speaking personally, in terms of the amount of press material that I get. A couple of years ago, there was really not very much on this particular area, but now I seem to be getting press releases on carbon footprints and sustainability on a daily basis, if not even more frequently than that. What do you think has changed to make it much more front and center of people's attention? 
That's a good question. You know, I don't have a single answer for that. I think the pandemic did a lot to focus people on the vulnerability of humans. And that has translated into a greater awareness of the importance of getting on top of climate change. And then the other angle I think that has really changed is the way people have understood what a problem looks like when it's at scale, when it's at large global scale. It's really hard to comprehend something when someone tells you this is going to affect the whole world to the tune of trillions of dollars of damage and impact on individuals from your neighborhood all the way across the world. And the pandemic gave us a very easy way of visualizing what that looks like. And climate is exact same thing. You know, it will have impacts on you and it will have impacts on people all the way around the world. And so I think, you know, I think that that has really hit home for people and it's shifted the expectations of how businesses behave in a good way. It's becoming the norm. And I think any company now that is operating and expecting to preserve strong relationships with its customers, whether those are business customers or consumers, has to have a plan in place and has to be talking in a way that's meaningful about its own trajectory and path toward net zero. I also think that there is sort of a, a moment that happened in 2018 when in spite of years and years and years of trying, for some reason, things just clicked for people. That was the year that the IPCC came out with a report that really talked about there being 12 years to get on top of climate change. And for some reason, that number 12 just really stuck in people's minds. And we're now at the point where that number and the concern about that number has really been internalized within companies and people are starting to make plans. It's starting to become the basis for strategy. And I guess climate change is one of those things that it's not easy to quantify. And there are so many different terms. How Mm -hmm. difficult is it to standardize some of these claims and are consumers the end consumer confused about things like offsets and credits and all of the different terms that we're hearing yeah there's a lot of jargon no question about that from our perspective the question is how much should we expect individuals to understand um, there will be people who love reading things and love really considering themselves experts. And I think that there will be everybody else and everybody else is kind of the consumer base that we need to really think about. And so the jargon itself needs to be made simple. And in some cases, or in many cases, I think optional, if we're going to really drive any sort of consumer movement at scale, because otherwise people just kind of you know get overwhelmed. How do I piece together what all these different things mean and let alone do anything about them? You kind of uh, touched on the 2050 issue earlier. I just wonder, is setting goals for 2050 avoiding the issue? I mean, clearly for some companies, it's a, an end goal, but is it an avoidance for some companies? I think some companies are certainly using it as a way of punting. Yeah, I mean, sort of pushing things into the future that maybe don't really have to be dealt with now. It's a useful vision to talk about but if it's not backed up with immediate investment then it doesn't feel like it has a whole lot of teeth and is greenwashing much of an issue in this area yeah i mean just by, by that same token i think that companies that are making claims that respond to the zeitgeist you know that respond to the this the kind of the, the thinking that people have but where those claims aren't backed up by an immediate action that to me is a great example of greenwashing there are some sectors like 
the dairy industry that are right at the forefront of this. And I know that mm -hmm. I've had on the podcast before many nonprofits that have been quite critical of dairy companies and dairy cooperatives um, because they say that they're using different terms or that they say that the industry's doing great when it really isn't. Do you have any sense of where that is going? We've had guests on the podcast before from nonprofit organizations that have been somewhat critical of some dairy companies in terms of the terminology that they've been using. How do you think the dairy industry is doing? There's certainly a lot of attention being paid to the climate opportunity within agriculture, whether that's dairy or row crops or meat production. And I think the question is how many farms have actually adopted regenerative agriculture in their operations and or implemented things like methane digesters to capture the methane that's coming off of a farm or adopted new feeds to reduce the methane emissions from cows. There's been a lot of R&D in this space. I guess I would characterize it as we're very early R&D. We're not even yet kind of at replication phase where we're starting to see a model that is being adopted more and more and more by farmers and farms. And we need to get from there onto through scale. So it's important for folks to blow the whistle when it looks like there are industries that are not doing as much as they should. And we know, you know, it's no, no secret that dairy and, and meat production are significant contributors to climate change. And, you know, not just from the direct operations, but from conversion, land conversion forests over to farms in particular. Turning the sector from a problem into an opportunity, I think, is the key thing. And a handful of companies are out there now trying to figure out how to generate credible carbon value or carbon benefit from farms that reverses some of that damage. How can companies be held accountable as opposed to this, as we've talked about, that amorphous will be there by 2050? How do we keep them accountable now and then two, five, ten years into the future? Yeah, I mean, I think we just need to understand what they're doing and what they're doing immediately. So how much money are they actually investing in, in solutions today? What are they doing to change their supply chain and operations? And what are they doing to influence policy? So I sort of think of the, the, the ideal portfolio for any company is, you know, once you've measured your emissions, assign each ton of emissions some sort of a price, 10, 20, 30, $40 a ton, and, you know, take a third of that and put it into R&D and take a third of that, put it into policy advocacy and take a third of that and put it into direct mitigation through, through carbon credits. And if a company is able to do that and report on the amount of money that's being specifically invested in immediate carbon reductions. And I think we're looking at something that is kind of a model to follow. But I think, you know, what troubles me is when you, when you sort of see a claim and the claim is far off and the claim isn't backed up by any um, demonstration of actual either progress or investment, then you really start to get into the range of like, is this claim really meaningful or not? What are you doing as, a, as an organization to try and influence this and to try and help it's important to enable companies to move in the right direction. How are you trying to mm -hmm. help clarify things? Yeah, I mean, the first problem we've tried to take on is that, that very first problem of measurement. So we've tried to streamline carbon measurement by enabling companies to use a piece of software that we built 
to kind of take this discipline that has been traditionally very arcane and make it easier for companies just to understand how they're contributing to the problem. And then the second thing that we've tried to do is lay out a clear framework for any company that has maybe some sustainability program, but no climate program specifically, and make sure that the company has an idea of what it can do about climate. And then we've tried to create a single definition of carbon neutrality so that from the consumer perspective, things that companies are doing are understandable and that consumers can ask for the actions that companies are taking and start to demand that more companies take, take those same actions. And as far as moving forward, what do you see as, I guess it's kind of a two parts to this in some respects, because we're starting to see in the same way as in the UK, we have traffic light labels for things like salt and sugar and fat. And I know mm -hmm. other countries have different means of doing that. But do you think that we're going to start seeing some kind of labeling that will enable consumers to look at it and see what the cost is to the climate in terms of the product that is contained inside of it and also the packaging? Mm -hmm. um, but then how does that get to a point where it's meaningful to consumers and that it's also standardized? Yeah, I mean, different people are trying out different things with labeling from carbon content to, you know, just climate neutrality or carbon neutrality, which is what we do. And I think, you know, there's sort of different theories here. Our theory is that most consumers are not going to take the time to understand the difference between three grams and four grams of carbon, you know, in a tea bag, and that there needs to be more than just a disclosure of the amount of carbon, because that disclosure doesn't necessarily say what's actually happening with it. The difference to a, cal a calorie label would be, you know, you get the calories and then you decide whether to eat them or not. But in this case, a consumer can see the four grams of carbon in a product and not decide whether to emit those or not, right? Because those have already happened and, and the, the company has to take responsibility for those. So labeling to me needs to go further than just saying what the carbon content is. It needs to, it needs to include information about what's being done about that carbon. You bring up an interesting point there as to, I think that people have got a good grasp of, okay, I need 2000 calories a day and they can kind of work that out when they see the packaging or they can say, well, that's really high in salt. A number on the front of a package that relates to carbon, how do you communicate what that means to the consumer so that they can say, well, is four good or is four bad? Is 10 better than four or is it worse than four? I think yeah. there's a lot of education needs to take place. Exactly. Yep. And how quickly will consumers catch on to that and be able to interpret those types of things is, is a really big question. So I guess fast forwarding, where do you see this five years from now? I mean, I think that, or I hope that we will be at a point where not only is labeling universal, but that labels will have to include a disclosure about what exactly is being done about emissions. There's no question in my mind that if we sit and wait for good policy, we won't be where we need to be in 10 years or, or even 30 years. And there needs to be direct and immediate action by consumers and by companies, which needs to work in accordance with policy and, and other, other positive changes. There's no silver bullet to this problem. And I think people are often looking for the one thing that they should do. And there is no one thing. 
So I think that consumer labeling and mobilizing product makers and retailers to do stuff is part of a portfolio that needs to happen. But in five years, my hope is that it's pretty standard that you go into a store and you're able to see information about the carbon impacts, climate impacts of a product. Do you think that some of that will have to come from legislation? Maybe it should, but I think what the industry needs to do is lead it there as opposed to saying, well, we're not going to do it because we think that the government is going to tell us how to eventually how to label it, just like we have with nutrition facts. I think the industry has to, industry in general has to try out different models and show the impact and demonstrate that they're having an effect. And then we can back into policy that solidifies it. I guess then we get into the issue of standardization, because it could be that the US takes one approach and then the EU another and the UK a different approach entirely. So it would be nice to see all of that standardized. Exactly. Yeah, we're working on that a little bit with the opportunity for maybe some interregional collaboration. I think that there's no reason that the world needs to coalesce around our label in particular, but would love for there to be an international standard because supply chains are international and so are consumer markets. I mean, you know, we have all kinds of consumers from Europe reach out to us all the time. And similarly, a lot of our businesses, whether they're American or otherwise, do distribute products around the world. And I think the more we can harmonize with one understanding of what this needs to be, the more we'll do service and being able to scale the consumer awareness and consumer support for the change that needs to happen. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets. And this week, it's Charlie Highland's turn from Stonex. Hi, Jen. Um, it's been a reasonably weaker uh, market in, in the past week on the European side in particular. And probably the biggest reason for that is down to the milk collections. Um, we've had, uh, through most of Europe, uh, reasonably warm weather, which, but it has been um, you know, plenty of rain and sunshine, which has been pretty positive for grass growth. So I think things have been improving slightly there. And also on the farmer margin perspective, there's been a slight easing on, on some of the feed prices as well. So that's leading to a bit of a positive sentiment around milk collections. And also some of the numbers that are starting to come out in the official statistics are, are coming in better than expected for milk collections. Um, currently, we're forecasting that uh, total EU will be up for April um, around 1.25%, which is stronger than we were expecting. And, and with solids, that should be even stronger still because solids have been performing well this year. Uh, France just came out this week and they, they've been a pretty poor performer earlier on in the year. But now for April, their official number came in at uh, plus 0.7%, which again was stronger than forecast. So that's kind of weighing a little bit on the market, some some signs of positive uh, news on the milk collections. Some of the other things uh, weighing a little bit on the markets has been the fact that the EU exports numbers, which were out uh, just this week as well for April, have been uh, a lot weaker than expected. Uh, on a milk equivalent basis, uh, it's been down about 3.6% year on year. But the big, uh, you know, of the bigger commodities, butter in particular has been quite weak, down about 29.3%. Now, there has been a lot of revisions around these export numbers in recent months. So, you know, it's quite possible they will be revised again. But it, these numbers are weighing a little bit on the market. Uh, in other global markets, uh, the GDT has been uh, slightly negative this week as well, a little bit more negative than forecast, uh, dropping by about 1.3%. 
Um, there is still signs that there's good demand coming from China, though. So that is putting, um, you know, a little bit of a, a breaks on any on any slide in prices here. Um, also, there's been some, you know, reasonably weaker news uh, out of the US, um, some bearish signals coming uh, from where there may be additional government supports coming to um, to support farmers uh, in the coming months. So in general, slightly bearish tone, nothing too dramatic. We haven't dropped very um, aggressively in prices, but it's start- slightly easing over the last uh, over the last week. Thanks, Charlie. We'll either catch up with you or Liam again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we have quite a lot already done for the next few podcasts, and next week we have a special theme for you, and that's International Women in Engineering Day on June the 23rd. So hopefully you'll join us for that as well. I guess I should go and do something really constructive now, like go and get some lunch. So wherever in the world you are, and whether or not you're watching the Euros, I hope you have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening. 